Hello, hello, hello. It's me, Billy, host of Even Baddies Wear Helmets, back with another shiny new episode for your listening ears. Now, we're slightly breaking our own rules this week, but you know what they say, rules are made to be broken, or at least gently messed with. Uh, We are the podcast all about children's television and the wonderful people who make it, the operative word there being television. However, this week we're shaking it up and talking film, film and toys. So safe to say we've been fascinated by how the creatives of children's media work with brands and the people who make the merchandise. So we wanted to find the best person we could to help us dig into that a little more. And oh boy, do we have a brilliant guest for you. I am very, very excited to be joined by the wonderful Matthew Ashton, Vice President of Design at Lego and Executive Producer of the smash hit Lego Movie, Lego Movie 2 The Second Part, Lego Batman and the Unikitty TV series for Cartoon Network. Matthew was also judge on Channel 4's Lego Masters and is the man behind Lego's recent Everyone is Awesome Pride set. I'm especially excited because, like myself and Paul Hollywood, Matthew hails from the World Peninsula, so it's nice to have things in common. Uh, This episode is all about play as part of the creative process. It's all about selling a product without selling your soul and what it's like to move from fashion to toys to film to telly. So if you're ready, let's do it. Hello, Matthew. Hello, Billy. How are you? I'm doing very, very well. How are you doing? I'm very good, thank you. Excited to have a chat with you. I'm excited to chat with you. You've just told me that there are puppies around in your household. Yes, I'm back visiting my mum at the moment and um, she breeds golden retrievers. So there are six puppies in the other room. So hopefully they've all been fed and they'll be fast asleep in a minute. So if there's any yapping going on in the background, that's what it is. I'm kind of hoping for it. I'm hoping for some (laughs) little like doggy cameos. (laughs) So Matthew, you are vice president of design at Lego. um, And I'm presuming that means that you played with Lego as a child. How much of a fan were you? Um, I loved Lego when I was a kid. Um, I loved a lot of my toys. Um, I think um, Lego was particularly special to me because um, me and my brother were very, very different um, growing up. So while I was twirling around in the garden, praying that I turn into Wonder Woman, he was slashing the heads off the daffodils with his lightsaber. So (laughs) we were quite quite different in that regard. And Lego was probably um, the only toy that we really, really had in common and played with nicely together and, and, and got on with. Amazing. And were you the kind of kid who always followed the instructions or were you kind of like carving your own path? Um, I was quite an instruction follower, it has to be said. I think a few rules uh, are quite helpful to begin with. Yeah, so to any rule followers out there, you are cool. You're one of the cool kids as well. (laughs) You have to be a rebel. Um, I mean, being kind of a a designer of of toys, it sounds like a a made-up dream job. Like when you ask kids what they want to do, it's like, I'm going to design toys. What What does being VP of design at Lego actually involve? Um... Quite a lot. So my day is really, really varied and every day is different. And and just before I go into that, I think mentioning like 
how I became a toy designer and everything. Mm. I um, remember as a kid, I was playing with um, my brother's Lego sets in his room and he had a load of the classic space um, stuff. And I just watched um, the movie Big with Tom Hanks in where he's a little kid that grows up into an adult and becomes a toy designer. I was also obsessed with um, Pinocchio as well, which was all about uh, a toy coming to life. And and so there was so much of that stuff um, going on around me that I was really obsessed with toys. And it was actually while I was playing with my Lego um, that I had this little light bulb moment and I was like, oh my goodness, I want to be a toy designer when I grow up. But of course, um, as you grow up, you're like, is that really a thing to be? Because you don't meet many toy designers yeah, or yeah. hear of them. And I just knew I wanted to do something creative and and sort of continued down that path, actually studying fashion design before I became um, a toy designer. So, um, but getting back to the question that you asked, <laughs> um, my days are really varied at the moment. I have all of the core product lines um, underneath me. So that's things like Lego City and Friends and Ninjago and Creator and Classic and Technic and all of the kind of products that uh, are lines that are going to be in the portfolio ongoing. So I have teams of design managers and designers um, working um, within my department, and they're the ones that get to do all of the creative work. I am in a lot of meetings and a lot of... um, um, I have to do a lot of organizing um, around this and um, and making sure that I clear the runway so they can um, be as creative as they need to be with the, the products um, that, that they create. So I, of course, have creative input and help with art direction on the sets that they're creating and the character development and all of that kind of stuff. But there's not as much building now in my career as I would potentially like there to be. So I, I, I miss that a little bit. That's really fascinating the, the the fact that it has been something from from childhood. I kind of because I, I I knew that you started out in fashion design, so I kind of thought that 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 narrative was that you you wanted to do fashion design, and then kind of toy design came up as something um, kind of unexpected. But the fact that it, it's it's been there all along is really lovely. And I, I wondered how how did that that fashion design experience like translate into the work that you do now? Um, well, I think most sort of. Um, design processes are quite similar. Obviously, the end result is very different. So whenever you're um, creating either a catwalk collection or something, it's very much like designing a Lego set in the hat. You sort of have to search for inspiration. You have to do your research um, to begin with to figure out sort of what themes and color palette and everything that you want to use. Um, and, And then, of course, you go through a process of sort of trying things out and experimenting and sketching, um, before you come to the sort of final end results. So I think um, both industries are very similar in a way, um, but it was something where I just, I had um, some work experience within the fashion industry, had some really good placements and, and loved what I was doing at the time. But deep down, 
I always knew that I wanted to do something for kids and with kids. And I kept doing children's work at uni, which is a little bit frowned upon. It's like you need to be a hook chore designer and do all fancy, fancy stuff. Um, so so children's work is a little bit frowned on um, in that regard. But I always sort of kept doing things like that. I continued collecting toys throughout um, my sort of university life and everything as well. And then when I um, graduated, um, I did my runway show at Graduate Fashion Week in London. And then we had an exhibition in Islington um, called New Designers. And that's where um, a load of different students from all different disciplines of, of design who've graduated can display their work in, in one um, massive big exhibition hall. And um, I was being a little indecisive at the time and couldn't decide which garment or which part of my portfolio to display. So I did a miniature catwalk collection of my um, garments on some Barbie dolls in a Perspex case. There happened to be somebody from Lego at (laughs) that exhibition who was going to meet with... I know, so that was to meet with some um, industrial designers and... um, and, um, I think some illustrators and things like that. And luckily, this sounds a bit awkward, but my exhibit stand was right next to the exit. So everybody had to walk past my stand when they were leaving the building. And luckily, they spotted me on the way out and loved my work. And then um, I managed to get a little bit of freelance work um, to begin with before I ultimately moved over to Denmark to work full time. That's amazing. It's It's really interesting as well to hear you talk about how um children's wear is is kind of frowned upon in that world it's something that kind of has come up a few times on the podcast as well is is writing um children's television is sometimes viewed as as almost kind of less serious or or less difficult or less accomplished Mm -hmm. than writing for adults it's 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 a real mentality i think that exists If, if not in the industry itself then in in the way it's perhaps perceived exactly and I think in so many ways kids clothes are so much more creative at least from a graphic and a print point of view as well there's so many times where I'm scrolling through something on Instagram I'm like oh my god that's an amazing sweater and then open it and it's like oh it's for a 10 year old (laughs) (laughs) I am exactly the same issue I saw this jacket the other day that was like holographic and silver and I was like I'm oh it's for eight-year-olds okay love to ask you a little bit about the first Lego movie I think in part um, because it's the one that um, our listeners will probably be most familiar with but also it's the sort of springboard to a whole load of other things Um, and you were exec producer on it it came out in 2014 yes Um, there'd been kind of Lego video games and so on beforehand I'm, I'm curious to know why hadn't a movie happened sooner if that makes sense you know why was this the right time for this thing to happen I think we had done a little bit of experiment with some straight-to-DVD stuff and um, we were kind of finding our feet in that arena and um, it's pretty much down to studios who who want to make a movie. So luckily um, um, we had Dan Lin from Lin Pictures and Warner Brothers were really, really interested in that. So they um, signed a contract to sort of do several pitches um, for the movie and we were, 
like letting them write some stuff, figure out um, how that would sort of come together. And if within the time period that they had that contract, they come up with something that we liked, then we'd um, sort of go ahead um, with that. So um, so that's sort of where it spawned from. So it was actually um, Dan Lin from um, Lin Pictures, who was in, in charge, who was the producer on, on the whole um on, on the whole movie and he got in contact with Jill Wilfred who was the head of sort of our entertainment side of the business at that point so they were going into discussions long before I was brought into the the project on on how to get this off the ground and how to get going am I right in saying that you hadn't worked on a film prior to this nope so um yeah so that was Super, super exciting, super daunting at the same time. And of course, I kind of was feeling a little bit guilty in a way because I've already got a dream job of being a toy designer, which is already amazing. And then the fact that I was then having to, uh, I was given the opportunity to work on the movies as well was 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 so special to me just because I've loved animation right away from I was from when I was a kid and especially Pixar stuff and Toy Story and and those kind of things have been really really um important films in my life so it was super exciting to 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 get the opportunity to do this it's wicked and a, a big challenge you say how how do you kind of prepare for that kind of thing if you've never as I say like this is a completely new world and it's <laughs> huge where do you sort of start with that for me, at least, having, because I think it was probably 11 years into my um, career uh, by that point. So obviously, I had a lot of um, sort of Lego know-how, knew all about um, the sort of visual identity of what things needed to look like um, to, to really uh, be true to the brand and that kind of stuff. So I'd actually been developing um, some style guides and guidelines of how to sort of sharpen up um, the Lego identity in general, especially through our, our minifigure characters and things like that, because there had been a period um, in the run-up to just before I was employed where um, the art direction was a little bit of a mess and everything was really all over the place and very inconsistent and any designer who was creating a set or creating graphics could just kind of do what they wanted with it and we needed to really get things in place where we treated um, the Lego minifigure in the same way that Disney would treat Mickey Mouse and be super protective over Mm. um, the look of the character so we sort of sharpened up all the guidelines around that so we made sure that whatever we put out um, that the public would see all felt like it came from the same company and no matter who designed it it all felt um, really consistent and things so I'd sort of been part of that and that was sort of um, in in the process of doing that of course we had to pull up some bad examples of things in video games or campaigns or or print ads and things that had sort of not been um in line with with what we wanted to do as a brand um to to tidy all of that up so i'd already sort of um started that process and and the style guides were sort of um, developed just as we were going into the development of the movie, which made things so much easier when it came to a look perspective of of where we should be going with with that. Absolutely. That's, I mean, it's something that kind of has has come up um, a few times because branding is something that obviously is is a big part of children's television, children's film, um, in a way that it, it maybe isn't in a similar way in the world of adult content but yes 
I'm really curious about what kind of relationship the the writers, the directors of the film have with the brand and the merchandising side of things more generally. Like how how collaborative is that development of story and scripting? Like it's 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 really interesting to hear how sort of the the style guys develop around the visuals, but around yes. other elements as well. Is there a, a real conversation happening? Yes. Yeah, so and and of course with the Lego Movie, it was really really important that we work together, collaborate to collaborate. God, it's a hard one, isn't it? I was struggling then as well. <laughs> we Late in the day. <laughs> yes, exactly. So, and of course, we wanted to create a movie that first and foremost had a really compelling story that like took um, what people's perception of the brand was to an entirely different level. And um, and of course, there were things that were written that were like, oh, should we be doing this from a brand perspective and not? And some <laughs> things got through and some things didn't. But we we really wanted to make sure that going into this industry, we got some really good writers and some good teams on board because if you're too strict and policing about things to begin with then it's really difficult to get somebody who wants to be really creative to sort of write the story and everything so we did need to give a certain amount of space and creative freedom um, to be able to get really really good stories out and as long as the overall message um, tied in with our brand values and our and, and that kind of stuff about fun and creativity and imagination and and all of that kind of thing, then then that was the sort of starting point. And then we were really, really lucky um, working with um, Phil Lord and Chris Miller because they are such fans of um, the sort of stop motion um, videos mm. that um, fans had created using Lego products and things. So just the fact that they wanted to go as close to the real product as possible, whereas our video games have kind of got more of a rubbery kind of animation that the, the characters are much more flexible. Um, but they were like, no, if we make this movie, we want it to look like it has actually been built out of um, real Lego pieces. The characters perform in the same way um, the, the 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 actual toy would perform and actually all of those limitations of what a minifigure can and can't do add so much to the charm of how the characters are then animated and the way that they behave um, that makes it so unique and identifiable and, and ownable to let go as well. So, um, yeah, so there was quite a bit of um, freedom to begin with um, in the sort of overall um, story writing, but working with Chris and Phil, they're very sort of iterative and it really, every time you read a script, it's changing in different directions and, and luckily, <laughs> in most cases, it's changing for the better <laughs> and, and things are becoming uh, much more aligned, but they are, uh, absolutely relentless in in making sure that everything is as good as it possibly can be and as funny funny as it possibly can be so um yes so right the way until months before the the movie was supposed to be in cinemas then dialogue was changing animation needed to change to fit the dialogue and and all of that kind of stuff so it was down to the last minute um but um we were super proud with the end result of that pulled it off um, yes. <laughs> I think sometimes it, it can feel sort of a bit maybe oversimplistic to kind of separate out those like the merchandising and the yeah. kind of story or creative aspect exactly. especially within the world of children's I think there's I think <clears throat> I know something that's kind of come up a few times is people worrying about a, a loss of 
um, creative control and freedom at the expense of maybe having to sell a product or something like that. But I think, exactly. as you say, with Lego, like storytelling and the way in which you play yeah. with that toy are completely sort of bound together. And I think we knew going into this, there was obviously many people very excited about us making a movie. There was also a lot of skepticism of mm. whether this would just be a giant toy commercial and um, we were just in it to sell merchandise. And that was not the reason we were doing this at all. It was it was to sort of really elevate the brand in sort of totality and to really show how creative you can be with whatever Lego products um, that you buy, that it's an open-ended building system and, and, and the fact that this was uh, um, a hybrid of... Um, animation and live action where you could see it was the kid playing with the toys and him and his dad mm. had built stuff together and um, he was he was fighting against his dad's rule following and instructions and, and all of that kind of stuff that he wanted to be the more expressive and creative one I think that was um, a really important message to us so so getting a message like that through was way more important to us than how many of each set um, that we, we'd sell and we did work um, really, really closely with um, the art department and the directors and the animation team when we were um, creating um, the assortment of toys. Um, that was very much based on we read through the scripts and highlighted anything that we thought could be toyetic and would make a good toy. Um, and then we'd co-design that together with, with the production um, company. So it was both backwards and forwards between the product designers and um, the, the movie design team to create that. So there was no point where we were like, right, we want this spaceship put in this, in this movie, write it in. It was like it needed to make sense um completely from a story point of view and then we once we'd settled on what those things would be um that would make great toys then we co-designed them together and then everything else was sort of left up to the production company for all of the background stuff and crowd scenes and and that kind of thing this is so cool um and i think i've just learned a new word toyetic i know like toyetic i think like a it's a word that we throw around all the time uh, at work <laughs> then then you say it to anybody outside of lego and the lego company and they're like oh i've never heard that word before and i think oh maybe we've just made it up but i think <laughs> it's one of those things that kind of just describes that it's something that has got the appeal and the play value and the sort of storytelling ingredients it's going to make a great toy that's my new favorite. What's my word of the day? Amazing. There we go. <laughs> and what um, advice then would you give to writers, directors, producers, people in the kind of film and TV world on when it comes to working on projects that have that kind of um, merchandising element or brand element to them? What what? How can they kind of make that collaboration work easier for themselves and for for the brand? Um, for me personally, I think. Um story comes first and mm. then make sure that um i i think when when you create a property and it's solely to sell toys it can become so obvious and it's so formulaic in a way that it it does become like a toy commercial so it's really important 
to get a cast of characters that people can see themselves in or can aspire to or or can see differences in them to themselves that make them even more interesting. Um, so character to me is the number one most important thing is, is to get um, all of those distinct personalities um, across. And then anything aside from that, if there are um, vehicles and 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 settings that could make um, for for um, for good toys, it's just make sure that there's a nice level of detail, and um, and then there's some some functionality and things built into the vehicles that's surprising or or imaginative in in that way because then that can lend itself to making um, a really great toy. One of the things that we do struggle with sometimes is that when we're trying to create something out of Lego, there's a lot of movies where they want to go for super sleek. Um, streamlined, um, minimal detail on spaceships and things like that. Mm-hmm. And we're like, oh my goodness, this is going to look the most boring product if we make it in Lego. <laughs> Add some detail and some greebling and, and little bits and pieces onto it. So it it does feel like it's it, it's something that's got um, some really interesting features that then can be translated nicely into a toy. That is really um, useful practical advice. That's really kind of interesting. I have never thought about that before. Yeah. Um, I'd love to ask a little bit more about the kind of the, the style of comedy in the film. You know, it's completely packed with like parody and references to other franchises. And I think that's something that, I mean, the world of Lego lends itself to that. Yes. You can have, you know, Star Wars alongside like Jurassic World. Um, how do you kind of bring all of those elements and genres together into something that kind of feels cohesive that comes under that that kind of lego brand that is a um, <laughs> it's quite tricky in a way um because and we were in a very fortunate situation that we had signed star wars into the franchise before it was bought by disney and you know all of those different kind of things because studios are particularly protect protective about their own properties and what they're mixed with and things like that so there is a lot of discussions and negotiations and everything going on behind the scenes so there were some cameos written into the movie that never made it in because of either licensing agreements and, and all of that kind of stuff. So um, there is quite a lot of, of politics yeah. <laughs> and negotiations and stuff that go on behind the scenes. But I think in any situation like that, it's just best that go for the dream and then try whatever you can to pull that off and get the people on board that need to. And if that doesn't happen, then always make sure that there's a solid plan B in place mm. um, um, to make that happen. And I think the fact that um you know we've translated so many ip properties into um lego over the years whether it's it's star wars or the dc and marvel stuff indiana jones harry potter we've got such a wealth of properties that we've already um worked with that made it um kind of easier and luckily many of those also fell under the warner brothers umbrella which which made it easy to get those in the movie but it was great that we could get things like star wars in as well and so much to just kind of like poke fun at, gently poke yes, fun at. And, exactly. um, and, really and it's funny as well because, because some properties, and I'm not going to mention names here, you'd expect them to be up for a parody. And then they're like, no, 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 you have to treat our characters very, very seriously. Others that you feel may be super protective are like, no, do what you want and you can go to town with it. So, um, yes, yeah, so there's, there's, 
there's not only the approval of getting them in the movie and how they're featured, um, it's also that the way they're, they're written and the way that they're voiced and things as as well. That's amazing. And I mean, as you say, kind of the the characters which really do lend themselves to parody, like your sort of Batman and things like that. Yes. Um, we then launched into the second Lego movie, the Lego Batman film. As as a kind of new film producer, what did you take from that very first experience that you then kind of brought on to the next ones? Um, <laughs> they were all so different in a way and presented so many different challenges to each other. Um, I think... The really nice thing about the first Lego movie is it was a complete blank canvas, but with it being a blank canvas, that just meant you had any option and it could go in any direction. So that was um, that was sort of tricky, sort of landing all of the characters and sort of coming to, to mutual agreements on exactly who everybody should be and what they should be like. So, um, But we managed to create an amazing um, cast for... Um, the first Lego movie. Whereas then if you start on a property, because um, obviously Batman and the entire um, DC franchise has um, all of their backstories and character development that's gone in the past. There's already been multiple iterations of what those characters have looked Mm. like, how they've been voiced, who's performed um, um, as each character in the past. And it's like, how do we take something that's, so well loved, so well known, has had so many versions over the years, and then try and make something that feels really unique. And um, and and so that that came right the way down to the way we we sort of designed the characters. That some of them we wanted to stay try quite um, close to their origins. Others we wanted to do a completely new take on on things as well. So um, that that was a very different process because of that. And I mean, the, all those different iterations of Batman that have existed, it's its so lovely to kind of see them brought together in a, in a world where that can happen. You know, exactly. we kind of flash back through the eras. And it was super exciting for me because I got to work on some characters that I really love. So I did some of the design work both on Harlequin and Poison Ivy. And I was like, oh, it was just such a dream to get my mitts on these like super powerful yeah. um female characters and to be able to do our own take on them that that had um references to to things that had come before but in a way that we could sort of push the styling and do th- new things with them that we'd also mm-hmm. never done in lego before this real sort of self-awareness it's it's yeah. so much fun I, it's, I hadn't i hadn't seen it and i watched it um before this interview and just i think the first the opening sort of 10 minutes i think i probably <laughs> laughed more than i have done in like quite a exactly. while and the thing is as well i kind of wish that um Oh, we had some such amazing animation on like Clayface where he was sort of morphing into things and sliding under the doors and stuff. But when you've got to fit everything in the 80 minutes or whatever the length of the movie is, so much stuff gets cut away and having every single Batman, well, not every Batman villain, but most of them um, within this movie. And some of them didn't even get a line. And I was like, oh my goodness, I just want (laughs) to carry this franchise on forever and and give them each a movie of their own. So, um, yeah. I look forward to seeing them. (laughs) (laughs) 
um, as well as the the Lego Movie franchise, you're also um, a producer on the Unikitty series for yes. Cartoon Network, and I think it's it's quite unusual for someone to move from feature film into TV rather than yes. the other way around. How did you find that kind of jump from film to television? Um, and to be honest, I didn't really have that much involvement in the Unikitty TV show. We were involved in sort of the original um, kind of pitch and the translation of what it would then look like as um, a 2D um, cartoon instead and sort of flushing out the different characters. So we were in that regard um, working with the, um, with Warner Brothers Animation and the Cartoon Network team. It was more about, right, these are the kind of products that we want to create. Can we write episodes around that? Um, and um, yeah, so it was just figuring out the look of that show. Um, but literally, the guys did such an amazing job um, from day one that we had very few notes on on the look of it. We tweaked um, the characters and 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 refined those a little bit. But um, it was pretty much um, just uh, a go to them. And they had such a talented team of writers and animators on stuff that um, yes, I'm I'm super happy with how it turned out. I mean, and as you said, it's got a very different aesthetic to a lot of the other um, shows and, and films within the whole kind of Lego franchise, as a 2D yes. animation especially. Yeah. Um, what was kind of behind that that stylistic decision then to, to make something that does look quite different? I think um, it was just a kind of property that lent itself to a really sort of cutesy illustrative um, um direction also the team that were behind it had worked on other things like teen titan and and, mm. and different properties um like that so um so just marrying those two things together and there's also quite a lot of restrictions on when you're creating a tv show for networks if it's based on a toy property you do have to sort of distance yourself a certain amount from the product so it doesn't look just literally like product placement and things as well so um you stylistically have to um when you're going on on terrestrial networks and things like that um work with the the sort of styling of the property which is why if you look at a tv show like ninjago um the minifigure characters are pretty close to um, the identity of the toys. But if you look at the dragons and things, they're much more sort of naturalistic than the actual toy dragons and things. So that's that's some of the stuff that you have to sort of work with to make sure that it can be aired in, in all territories on the networks that you want to get it on. I didn't know that. That's really interesting. There's a difference yes. there between... And I, I think as well, it, it, it also depends on whether the toy comes first or the mm. TV show comes first because a lot of the times a TV show will be created and then that spawns a product line based on the success of the show. Um, but if you're a brand where you're creating a TV show based on your products, um, that, that's where you have to be and more careful with that. It's interesting with Lego as well because it kind of feels like it comes in and out the other side if that makes sense that you yes. kind of started with the toy gone through the film come back to the toy gone through. it's sort of yes. um always evolving and, and shifting in that way something that we i'm just going to completely segue down to something different um very casually something that we kind of um talk about a lot on the podcast is is how children's content often manages to um have an appeal that goes beyond young audiences particularly animation yeah. um and lego 
similarly, more so than lots of other things, manages yeah. to kind of transcend generations. I mean, from the people who who play with it to the audience of the Lego movie to, I mean, the competitors on Lego Masters as well. Yes. Um, which I rewatched recently because I remember watching it the first time around. And I, I thought that in my head, for some reason, I remembered it as being like it would be a child and adult as a team. And that was yes. across the board. And then I watched it and I was like, hold on, that team is entirely eight-year-olds and that team is entirely grown men. I was like... Yeah, that did not make it very easy to judge. <laughs> I can imagine. But I, that's the thing that I, I think makes it so special and so unique is that it, it does it does kind of... It doesn't matter how old you are, um, you can still enjoy this. And why... This is a big question, but why do you think... Um, lego and the lego franchise more broadly manages to cater so well to both children and adults i think for a start it's kind of cross-generational um anyway just because people my age grew up with it people older than me um and it's been one of those things that i think a lot of parents and grandparents have had such a lovely experience with lego that they want to pass it on to their kids and 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 to make sure that it's it's a part of their lives um as it was for their own so i think there's something really nice and nostalgic about it even though the products have really moved on and are quite different in in many regards to what they may have been um like back in the day so i think there's a real sort of cross-generational thing that helps out and the fact that it's not a toy that you buy ready-made, play with it, role-play with it, that it's actually something that can grow with you, that the more you collect, the more you can build and the more you can get creative and things. So it, it's something that is, and the Lego that your grandparents owned or, or that your parents owned will still click together with the Lego that you have today. So it, it's just one of those things that it's kind of like an open-ended medium that anybody can sort of, delve into a bucket of bricks and, and create something from that so I think that really helps in regards to the toys and the kind of products we make we are of course much more conscious now of our adult audience as well and are doing products more catered specifically um, to them because it's become a real sort of hobbyist movement as well mm. there's huge lego fan conventions that get organized without us having to do a thing they just <laughs> rally together set up exhibit halls um, have projects that they work on together and amass these amazing models um, um, that, that they've created together for the public to go in and see so there's a real sort of creative movement um, behind Lego as well. And then I think from a content point of view, the shows that we've done have just kind of helped keep Lego sort of top of mind and very relevant to the kids of today, that it's themes that they enjoy. It's it's things that they want to play out themselves. We we try and sort of push the boundaries and, and, and come up with some new stuff that surprises them. So for the kids that love Lego, we always we've we've got this saying that it's it's um obviously Lego but never seen before is kind of what we want to create. That it's something that you look at it, you know this is a Lego thing, but it's something that surprises you at the same time. And and kind of going a bit more into the the kind of screen content um, mm -hmm. aspect of that. I mean, as you say, like the toy is something that you can you can always make of it what you want, and there is that that growth there. But the the film, in a way, you're giving someone kind of something that is already made, but just manages to capture that essence at the same time. I wonder when you were kind of um, developing 
the the film and producing it what sort of um conversations were you having about about audience throughout about who was going to be watching this um obviously the primary target audience was kids but it was um it was aimed to be a tentpole movie to begin with to pull in the entire family and of course a lot of the parody stuff and and the franchises specifically Star Wars and Batman and those things you know you're going to get your sort of comic book um adult geeky fan audience and things in with that so we knew there'd be a lot of dads queuing up to probably watch this movie themselves but taking their kid <laughs> as an excuse <laughs> for, for why they wanted to see it so um yeah so we did um do our best to try and just make it as appealing as possible mm. to to the whole family so that was very conscious from from the beginning that we didn't want it just to be a kids thing mm. it's making me think now i've got this um this photo of my dad on his 18th birthday with like proper you know big specs on he's in his dressing gown he's just come downstairs and he's holding this um it's like a technic set and he yes. looks beyond chuffed and I think it must still be somewhere in our house and all of the Lego that we had as kids was stuff yes. that we had a big box um which I think he's currently sorting through in our garage yeah. for it's a bit of a lockdown oh. project but um yeah it, it really is generational it's it's got that aspect to it. it is and there's so many people that when they go through their Christmas photos they're like oh this is me with my box of Lego and it just shows that that was probably top of their Christmas wish list they were so excited to get it and and things that that is the the one that's kind of been captured in a photo um as well so you can just get a sense of of how much the the brand and and building with Lego means to so many people and and this might be a bit of a um kind of diversion strange turn in the, in the conversation but um, I just I feel like I need to, to ask but something that we kind of have in common uh, is that we grew up LGBTQ on the Wirral Peninsula yes. um, <laughs> the wonderful Wirral Peninsula um, known for its thriving metropolitan queer scene um, <laughs> I wondered has can you put me out where that is please <laughs> I certainly didn't see it while I was there, sadly. No. Um, but I, I wondered how, I mean, has being um, part of that community shaped your approach to to design or, or to kind of just the, the role that creativity and imagination plays in, in your life? Is that a very broad question? I, it is, but I think I can answer it. I think um, it has definitely had an influence on me both through what I grew up watching and being attracted to as a kid has, has, has really sort of influenced me because um, it was quite different to what a lot of other boys <laughs> would have watched. So I think my inspiration sort of in general has come um, from different places. And I think the fact that I kind of struggled with my own identity and and my sexuality and all of those kind of things and I didn't sort of see a lot of representation obviously I was coming to terms with who I was um sort of mid 80s to early 90s so it's quite a long time ago and things have changed um a lot since then but I I think due to the lack of representation and things um um, I've sort of wanted to be very conscious of that throughout a lot of the toys that I've designed, not necessarily to begin with, with LGBTQ stuff, but even just in 
the representation of female characters and things mm-hmm. was so important to me once I got a foothold into working with toys that were more aimed at boys as well. I wanted to show them, look, women can be equally as powerful, equally as exciting, equally as heroic, equally mm-hmm. as funny as you guys. So that's one of the things that I've um, really, really tried to, to push for and I'm, I'm still continuing to do so. And then I think the other thing more recently is we've just launched our first LGBTQ um, related set called Everyone is Awesome. Obviously based on the song Everything is Awesome (laughs) from um, the first Lego movie and that was um, and there were several reasons why why that came out. Um, Creating this set as our first LGBTQ set but also looking at um, diversity and inclusion in, in general right the way across the portfolio. I mean, as you say, sort of toys have been kind of at the centre of of a lot of debates around gender stereotypes. It's always been that thing of you know you either play with dolls or you're gonna like play with cars, and that's kind of your, your two options, and you sort yes. of have the pink and blue aisles. But I think yeah, the, the conversation has moved on slightly now, and it's it's really um, right. Maybe it sort of hasn't. It hasn't. But I think it's really exciting to hear that there is that 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 drive there um to make things that reflect the world as it is and and to to be inclusive um do do you think that's something that we'll see in the kind of screen content as well as the the merchandise definitely so that that's kind of um um we have got several new properties that we're working on um at the moment that um we are going to be much more focused on on that kind of stuff and I, i think as well it's we're just wanting the whole portfolio to seem much more sort of gender embracing in a way that however you identify and whatever you want to play with, we just want to make sure that we offer a range of products that anybody can come into a Lego store or flick through the August catalogue or whatever. And no matter whether they're a boy or a girl or anything in between, they can be like, this is the thing that I want to play with. And um, they they can pick it. So what, whatever we, we're, we're trying to do is to make sure that we're not creating anything that alienates anybody at the same time. Amazing. Um, and the response to that set has already been incredible. Um, it has, yes. <laughs> I mean, you seem to be the sort of person who kind of just takes big challenges and career shifts fairly in, in your stride, just kind of like fashion to toys to toys to film, film to TV. It's all, it's all okay. Um, <laughs> and, and to be honest, it's kind of like... I do get quite bored quite easily. And when when I first started at Lego, I was like, "This is a dream job. I'll throw myself in there. Like, whatever happens, happens, and I'm just going to go for it. And, and it's... hopefully, <laughs> it'll work out. <laughs> Most things have a few things I do brush under the carpet, but um, it's all part of it. It's all it part is. of the experience. Yes, exactly. I mean, is, is there anything that, like, in kind of a, a dream world scenario, is there anything you'd particularly like to try your hand at whether that's in the world of design or film or television I would um if I ever left Lego I think I would want to go into more movie making and especially animation and things like that so of course it's a very very different industry so I was lucky enough to be partnered with some amazing people that I've learned a lot from, but not enough that I could then go and be a director or anything um, myself. But I think I'd kind of like to dabble um, a little bit more in that if I if I ever um, left Lego. Um, mm-hmm. I think so, but there's no plans on on leaving anytime soon. So. Yeah. <laughs> 
Fair enough. And then for anyone who's kind of um, perhaps toying feels like a pun now it's not meant to be a pun anyone who's toying with the idea of of moving into to kind of writing or directing from a a, a, or producing even from a from a slightly different background what would be your advice to them in, in embarking on on that journey I think um what I'd like to see is just people wanting to tell stories that are really sort of personal and unique and and are trying to push the boundaries or trying to deliver a really positive message and, and things like that. Because I think there's so much of Hollywood that's all about reboots and, you know, those kind of things that, that getting really original stories out there are so important and to sort of keep fighting to, to do that. And I think that's where um, people like Chris and Phil um, have been sort of real role models in that that they they don't really take compromises and things and 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 they want to get out there so I think it's just doing what you can to sort of get yourself into the industry and then just sort of try and surround yourself by really inspiring people that can teach you a lot as well and I also think as well it's like um being a really nice person to work with (laughs) as well so people want to keep coming back to you and want to use you for projects and things as well is is uh, you know that that shouldn't be overlooked as well it's like finding good collaborators and being a good collaborator at the same time um and and finally i mean you know what's coming but (laughs) what was your favorite television show as a kid um well, I have several. This could go on for hours. Um, I think I really loved stop motion stuff mm-hmm. as a kid. So that's even simple things like, um, I don't know if you know Morph, but he was just a yes, little character. Morph. So oh. just something as simple as that. But then there was also an animation that I loved when I was a kid um, that was uh, a sort of feature length Um um, I don't know whether it was on at cinemas, but I, I saw it on TV of Wind in the Willows that was created by Cosgrove Hall. Oh, and wow. that is just the, for its time, was so beautiful and intricate. And I just like poured over the whole thing. Like, how did they make all of these tiny maquettes and, and all of the furniture and all of the detailing and animated in a way that felt so real? So I think there's. Um, some things like that that were really really special to me and then a lot of other things were sort of female superheroes and and things like that so I loved She-Ra and Gem and the Holograms Um, I loved like the live action um, Linda Carter Wonder Woman as well to the point where I was like so obsessed with it that um, it was announced that the final episode of Wonder Woman ever was going to air on TV. And this was before we had a VCR player or anything. So I couldn't even record it. So I was sat in front of the TV with a disposable Kodak camera, taking photographs of her because I thought (laughs) I'd never, ever see her again. And then when I got photos back, of course, they were all blurred, all the flesh had bounced off the... So I was absolutely devastated. Of course, now as an adult, I've got the box set and... (laughs) still love it in some regards but then also wonder what all the fuss was about as a child as well um, with some of the special effects so um yeah so I think things like that have have played a really big part in my life and then I've always loved 
um, quite sort of cutesy stuff as well. Like from a Disney perspective, it's all the princesses, animal sidekicks and things that are my mm. favourites, like Flounder and Scuffle and, and, and those guys. And, and they've also played a part in when I created like um, Unikitty for the, the Lego movie as well. So, um, so they were a definite inspiration for her. Amazing. Such a brilliant list. I love it. Oh, fantastic. I mean, Matthew, it's been so lovely to speak to you and thank you so much for sharing all of your wisdom with us. Thank you um, so much. I hope it helps somebody out there. It's been <laughs> lovely talking to you. You have been listening to Even Baddies Wear Helmets. The podcast was hosted by me, Billy Collins, produced by Clodagh Chapman, with music from Finley Stafford, and our lovely logo was designed by Lucy Tiller. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can find us on social media at Even Baddies Pod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Make sure you subscribe, share, tell your mates. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you soon.